Last week, um, Egypt entered our story in a big way. Um, like most of the nations of its day, Egypt was ruled by whatever political family had power. And these families usually rule for a few generations before they're shoved out of power by a challenging family who is usually from a different major city. And you may not know this, but at this time, Egypt was not a single monolithic empire. It, it was just, it was, it was like Canaan, only bigger and more powerful. There were lots of competing city-states yanking power back and forth from each other. Each, um, each family's reign is called a dynasty, and it's usually associated with their city, their seat of power. So several successive dynasties will be grouped for, um, by historians into what we call periods. And as you might guess, there's often overlap between dynasties as families buy for power. Several hundred years before Joseph, the 11th dynasty finally brought all of Egypt under one ruler, at least temporarily. This is called the Middle Kingdom period, the glory days of Egypt from roughly 2130 BCE to 1639 BCE. And during this time of initial unification, Egypt expanded trade, made military excursions. They got as far north as Shechem with the military excursions. And they're doing that to guarantee that the vital trade routes remain open. But Canaan um, was just part of the Egyptian empire, you know, it, and they didn't see Canaan as anything more than a highway to Syria and points east. So I mentioned in one of our earlier classes that it's likely that Abraham lived in Ur in Mesopotamia around 1750 BCE or so, around the time of Hammurabi. But your Bible timeline may show him living around 2000 BCE. And the, the reason for the discrepancy is we don't actually know when Abraham lived. In fact, the historical factoids you read for these ancient times we're talking about have to be taken with a grain of salt. It's mostly guesswork until about 1000 BCE. Um, when, and at that point, the historical record gets a little more solid. Um, so don't, you know, don't get in arguments over these dates or these details or the who's or the what's. It's just, that's not the point of this story. And for every point you'll have one scholar make, you'll have another scholar making the opposite point equally vehemently and with equally enough proof. Just skip all that. But, you know, no matter when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived, we know they're like sometime between 2200 BCE and 1700 BCE. So you can see that they're smack dab living in the Middle Kingdom period. It's also during this time that we have several references, historical references, to people called the Hapiru throughout Mesopotamia. That's that whole Fertile Crescent part, that, that, that whole bit, bit at the top of the map. And that's the word we now pronounce as Hebrew. The Hebrews in these historical references were apparently in the lower classes. They were often soldiers and they were socially situated somewhere between the free citizens of Mesopotamia and the slaves. 
eventually the dynasties of the Middle Kingdom period, which were primarily where the seat of power was in Thebes, they were challenged by Canaanites who set up their, their seat of government in the Egyptian Delta up at a, a, a city called Avaris. And this power struggle between Avaris and Thebes ended the relatively peaceful Middle Kingdom period and ushered in this, what's called the Second Intermediate Period. And this internal strife naturally weakened Egypt and led to invasion by foreign powers. The attackers came through Canaan, of course, and included Canaanites as well as others. And the Egyptians called these diverse enemies the Hyksos, which literally in their language means rulers of foreign countries. It was the Hyksos who introduced Egypt to the horse and chariot, to body armor, and other advanced weapons of war. And since chariots figure into the story of Joseph, we know he lived sometime during this period. This is a close-up of the Delta region. The city of On, later known as Heliopolis, is mentioned as a prestigious location in Joseph's story. It's located in the Delta region, um, as you can see. And so this gives us another indication that Joseph would have lived during this second intermediate period. Scholars often place him around the middle of the period, around 1655 BCE. We don't know the name of the pharaoh he served under. We don't have records of all their names during this period. Like I said, the history's a little sketchy. We're in chapter 40 now in Genesis, and Joseph's been in prison a while, years probably. He, we, we don't know how long he served Potiphar and how long he was in prison, but we know he got to Egypt when he was 17, and, he's, and we do know he's now 28. So he's functioning as an assistant to the prison warden in prison. And one day, a couple of new prisoners arrive, and they are shaking in their boots. One of the new guys is, or rather was the Pharaoh's baker and the other was his cupbearer. Both of them are responsible for making sure Pharaoh's food and drink are safe. So I figure something slipped by them that nearly cost Pharaoh his life and both these guys got thrown in jail. Prison may be bad, but they're actually lucky to be alive. One day, Joseph notices that the baker and the cupbearer are looking pretty glum. When he asks them what's wrong, they tell him they both had dreams that seem significant, but there's no trained dream interpreter. That was like a thing in Egypt. There was no trained dream interpreter in prison, so they have no way to know what the dreams mean. And Joseph said, God holds the meaning of dreams. Tell me your dreams. And the cupbearer says, I dreamed of a vine with three tendrils, and as I watched, it blossomed and bore clusters of grapes. I held Pharaoh's cup in my hand, squeezed the grapes into it, and handed the cup to Pharaoh. And Joseph tells him, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your old position as cupbearer. And um, be sure to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. And the cupbearer promises to do that for sure. Well, when he sees what great news the cupbearer got, the baker says, do mine, do mine. He says, my dream was that I had three baskets of baked goods balanced on my head and birds were eating from the baskets. And Joseph says, those three baskets are also three days. 
in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift your head all right. He's going to lift it right off your shoulders, and then he's going to impale you. Birds will pick at your flesh. Gross. Three days later, the baker is executed, and the cupbearer gets his job back. What doesn't happen is the cupbearer pleading with Pharaoh to let Joseph out of prison. Now, he quite understandably keeps his mouth shut and his head down. So two more years pass. Joseph is now 30 years old, and he's given up on the cupbearer helping him. He's staring at life in prison. But far above his head, God is at work. One night, Pharaoh has a very disturbing dream. He dreams he's standing by the Nile River and sees seven really good-looking cows grazing in the bulrushes. The Hebrew word indicates these are specifically female cows, heifers. As he watches, seven emaciated cows come up out of the Nile. Your Bible may say they were ugly cows, but that word actually has a much darker meaning. It means downright evil. These are seven demonic-looking cows, and they scare Pharaoh to death. Not only are they fearsome to look at, but they easily overpower the seven healthy, normal cows and eat them alive. Now, everybody knows cows are not carnivores, and this dream is so terrifying, it wakes Pharaoh up. Well, he finally gets back to sleep and has another dream. This time, he sees seven plump, healthy ears of corn growing on a stalk. Then, seven more ears sprout, but these ears look like they've been blasted by the east desert wind, and as desiccated as these ears look, they still easily swallow up the seven plump, healthy ears of corn. Pharaoh jolts awake with his heart pounding. He calls in his trained dream interpreters and advisors, but none of them are able to give him an interpretation that satisfies him. I imagine by this time, everyone in court is shaking in their shoes. Heads are going to start to roll if someone doesn't fix this. I suspect that caught between a rock and a hard place, the cupbearer decides he might as well speak up. He tells Pharaoh he met a man in prison who was able to accurately interpret dreams. Pharaoh orders the man brought to him immediately. You can imagine the scramble that ensues to find Joseph and get him cleaned up for immediate presentation to Pharaoh. It says Joseph shaves. This is characteristic of Egyptians and only of Egyptians during this time period. All the other peoples of the area wore beards. When he's brought to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, I understand you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, I cannot, but God can. If you're marking your Bible, you'll know at a glance that throughout this entire story, Joseph only uses the word Elohim for God. So we have no way of knowing whether he said God or gods to Pharaoh. We, of course, assume big G God, but that might not have been the case in the context of speaking to a Pharaoh who worships a pantheon of gods. Anyway, Pharaoh relates his dreams to Joseph, and Joseph immediately understands them. He says, both dreams mean the same thing, and the fact that there are two dreams means God will definitely do this thing and will do it soon. Now, I find that very interesting, because when we first met Joseph, 
when he was 17, he just had two dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. And here we are 13 years later, and those dreams haven't happened yet. So this seems a very strange thing for Joseph to say. Nevertheless, he says, there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. This is upon us. Pharaoh needs to appoint a wise and intelligent man to prepare Egypt for the famine. Commissioners need to be set up all across the land to collect a fifth of the harvest during each of the next seven years. The food can be held in reserve for the nation so that Egypt is not utterly ruined during the seven years of famine. Well, this seems like a great plan to Pharaoh, and therefore, of course, to all the wise men who I imagine are gnashing their teeth at not having come up with this themselves. Pharaoh looks around the room, says, I don't see anyone here as wise and intelligent as you, Joseph, so you've got the job. You are now second only to me in the kingdom. You are in charge of my palace, my people, and all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh gives him his signet ring, dresses Joseph in fine clothes, and puts a gold collar around his neck. He gives him Potipharah, daughter of the priest of On, that city that I showed you on the map, as his wife. This is a big-time, highly prestigious match. And Pharaoh puts Joseph in a chariot and has him ride through the land as runners shout, Bow the knee! Bow the knee! And he gives Joseph an Egyptian name. We don't know the meaning of that name, but it is clear he was no longer called Joseph in his official capacity. Over the next seven years, Joseph collects so much grain, he stops keeping an inventory of it. It just gets to be too much to count. He also has two sons. The firstborn he names Manasseh, which means causing to forget. Because he says, God helped him forget all his hardships and all his father's household. I wonder if that last bit means God helped him get over his crushing homesickness and sense of deep betrayal by his brothers. I know, quote, getting over family is a long, tough journey, and being able to finally release those wounds is a big, big deal. Manasseh is a symbol of Joseph's new wholeness and inner healing. The second son he names Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful, because, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my misery. Life has come from death for Joseph, and his sons are a crowning blessing. When Joseph is 37 years old, the years of plenty come to an end, and the seven years of famine begin. The famine extends to Canaan, and Jacob and the remaining 11 brothers begin to starve. The brothers seem helpless in the face of this disaster. And finally, Jacob says, why are you sitting there staring at your navels? Egypt has grain. Go down there and buy some for us. So the brothers prepare to travel to Egypt. But Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go because Benjamin is the last of his favorites. Rachel and Joseph are dead as far as he knows, and there's no way he's going to let Benjamin out of his sight. The next part of the story can get a little confusing. Remember that Joseph's story begins in chapter 37, 
continues in chapter 39, but it's interrupted by the story of Tamar and Judah in chapter 38. This is an intentional intercalation meant to emphasize common points between the two stories. When an author tries to make two stories correspond, it can make the narrative seem a little jerky, as you may have noticed. The main point to remember here is that the intercalation alerts us that Judah will be an important figure in the Joseph story and that what happens to Joseph will reflect what happened to Tamar. I've put a bonus sheet in the study guide to give you the details of the intercalation. Now, as the brothers arrive in Egypt and enter Joseph's court, they do not recognize him. How could they? Joseph is clean-shaven, dressed as a royal Egyptian, probably has coal around his eyes. They last saw him when he was 17, and now he's 39 years old, and he speaks Egyptian, not Hebrew, and only speaks to his brothers through an interpreter. So it's no surprise at all that they don't recognize him. Joseph, on the other hand, immediately recognizes his brothers. The key to understanding this story is to realize that not only does it revolve around the intercalation and therefore the person of Judah, but it also revolves around Joseph's core family, his father Jacob and his younger brother Benjamin. Neither Benjamin nor Jacob are with the brothers, and Joseph is alarmed. When the brothers bow down to him, Joseph immediately remembers his dreams of long ago. He wants to engage his brothers in dialogue and find out about Jacob and Benjamin, but he can't just start chit-chatting with them. Viceroys of Egypt just don't do such a thing. So thinking quickly, he frames the dialogue as an interrogation. He accuses them of being spies, and he begins to question them. The brothers are dismayed and try to prove they're not spies. They explain they're all sons of one man and that they have one younger brother still at home, one brother who has died. I mean, they're like totally running off at the mouth here. Joseph calls them liars and says he will throw them all in jail until they can prove their story true by bringing their younger brother to Egypt. Well, this, of course, is jo Joseph's intent all along. He wants to see Benjamin and be sure he's okay, and if necessary, protect him from the other brothers. Who knows but what the brothers plan to murder Benjamin or sell him into slavery too. After the brothers have spent three days in jail, Joseph tells them he's decided to just hold one of them and let the rest of them return so they can take their grain back to their starving families. He chooses Simeon to hold as a hostage until they return with their younger brother. The brothers, not realizing that Joseph can understand Hebrew, berate each other saying, this is happening because we would not listen to Joseph when he pleaded for his life. We are being punished for our wrong. When Joseph hears his brothers admit they did wrong by killing him, or so they believe, he weeps and has to turn his head so they do not see. He sends the brothers on their way, keeping Simeon in prison. Unbeknownst to the brothers, however, Joseph has their silver returned to them in their bags of grain. The story appears to have been woven together from two different accounts, because in one place in the story, the brothers discover the silver while they're on their journey home, but in another place in the story, they don't discover it till they get home. 
Either way, they know it's not a good thing. You don't want to have absconded with the grain and with the payment, whether you did it unintentionally or not. That powerful man in Egypt is bound to think they really are spies after all. The brothers tell the tale to their father. Jacob, however, flatly refuses to let Benjamin return to Egypt. In effect, he would rather leave Simeon to die in prison than to risk any harm befalling Benjamin. The famine, however, eventually wears Jacob down. Judah finally tells his father the famine will kill them all, including Benjamin, so they might as well go down to Egypt and try to get food and get Simeon back. Judah takes full responsibility for Benjamin's safety, saying he'll bear the blame if anything happens to him. I find it interesting that at this critical juncture of the story, when Jacob decides to relinquish Benjamin, the storyteller calls him by his name Israel. I think that's as significant as when he was called Israel after he was forced to relinquish Rachel to death. These are major turning points in Jacob's life. They are major points of letting go. When the brothers arrive in Joseph's court and Joseph sees Benjamin, he turns and orders his steward to take them into his house and prepare a meal. The brothers, of course, are terrified. They're sure Joseph intends to throw them all in prison for being spies and stealing the silver when they left the last time. They try to explain to the steward what happened. They return the silver. The, whole, the steward pretends not to know what they're talking about. He assures them that all is well and he's already been paid. When Joseph arrives for the meal, he asks after their father Jacob and asks to be introduced to Benjamin. Now realize that Benjamin is not a boy. He, he's like 30 years old and has 10 sons of his own at this point. But he, in this story, is still the youngest. He's Joseph's only brother, and he's the most precious and vulnerable. Joseph blesses Benjamin briefly before he is overcome with emotion and has to leave the room, lest the brothers see him weep. When he returns, the meal is served with Joseph eating at his own table and the Egyptians eating at a table separate from the brothers, since Hebrews are despised by Egyptians and Egyptians will not eat with them. The brothers are astounded that they've been seated in their exact birth order and to see that Benjamin has five times as much food as anyone else, but they are quite literally starving, so they fall to and gorge themselves, and it says, everyone got drunk. At dawn, the next morning, hangovers and all, the brothers depart for home. Again, Joseph orders their silver put back in their grain sacks, but this time he has his personal silver goblet put in Benjamin's sack. Shortly after they leave, Joseph sends his steward after them to accuse them of stealing his special goblet. The brothers protest that that would not only be impossible, but illogical, since they've already tried to return the silver they found in their bags from the first trip. They cry, if you find any such thing, let the one who stole it die and the rest of us become slaves. Knowing the plot, the steward quickly amends this to, oh, only let the one who stole it become the slave. Of course, when the goblet is found in Benjamin's bag, the brothers tear their clothes in distress. The brothers all return dejectedly to Joseph's house.
when they arrive, they prostrate themselves before Joseph again. Joseph, still playing the charade, says, don't you know I can divine things like this? Divination in the Hebrew Bible is synonymous with magic. It is discovering truths, not by asking God, which is we're supposed to ask God, but it's by doing things like reading tea leaves or reading dregs in a cup of wine. It's kind of a slap at God. At, at this point, Judah steps up. He says, we are shown guilty and cannot prove our innocence. We are all now your slaves. But Joseph refuses, saying, no, only the one who had the cup will remain as my slave. The rest of you may go. Even still, Joseph is trying to save Benjamin from an uncertain fate at the hands of the brothers. And now we reach the climax of the story. For here is where Judah takes the blame on himself. He says, my Lord, please let me remain as slave in Benjamin's place. For if Benjamin does not return, our father will surely die of grief. This utterly breaks Joseph. This alone shows him the change in his brothers. This shows him that they truly love both their father and Benjamin, and there's no more to be feared from them. As tears begin to well up uncontrollably, Joseph clears the room of everyone except his brothers, and sobbing loudly, he makes himself known to them, speaking to them finally in their native tongue. To his flabbergasted brothers, he offers forgiveness and tells them, to no longer berate themselves over what they did to him. For God has made it into a great good. God has worked it so that the entire family will be saved from certain starvation because of Joseph's position in Egypt. Pharaoh, upon hearing the news, suggests that Joseph bring his entire family to Egypt, where they will receive the best that Egypt has to offer. Joseph loses no time in sending them off to gather Jacob and all the families, a total of 66 people, not counting the wives. Jacob, who is now 130 years old, is so shocked to hear that Joseph is alive that he literally has a heart attack. Fortunately, he recovers quickly and they all set off for Egypt. On the way to Egypt, Jacob offers sacrifices to God and has another vision in which God says, Do not be afraid, Jacob. I am the God of your father. I will make you into a great nation in Egypt. I will go down there with you and will remain with you there. And Joseph, your beloved son, will be the one to close your eyes in death. Now, this is something unique about our God compared to the other gods of Egypt and Canaan. Those other gods are tied to the land, not the people. This is a big difference and a big deal. Our God goes wherever we go. They arrive in Egypt and meet Pharaoh and are settled in the rich delta land of Goshen, where they can safely pasture their flocks. In the remaining five years of the famine, the people of Egypt sell themselves and their land to Joseph for food. And that's how Pharaoh actually 
becomes into ownership of all of this land. The 20% tax on produce remains in effect ever after that, or at least until the story was written down. But I want you to notice that Pharaoh, a king of the world, required 20%, while God only ever asked for 10%. Jacob lives another 17 years in Egypt. As he realizes death is approaching, he calls Joseph to him and makes him promise to bury him in Canaan next to Abraham and Isaac. It's interesting to me that this was his choice rather than to be buried next to Rachel, who's buried near Bethlehem. God finally was Israel's ultimate choice. Joseph brings his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob for his blessing. But when he brings them near, Jacob swaps his hands and gives Ephraim the blessing of the firstborn. And he says, I now adopt your two sons as my own, the same as my other sons. May they be called by the name of Abraham, Isaac, and by my name, and may they increase greatly. The elder son, Manasseh, will be great, but the younger son, Ephraim, will be even greater. From now on, the nation of Israel will utter blessings by saying, May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob gave Joseph an extra portion of land. After that, Jacob called all of his sons to gather around him, and he blessed them. We read some of the blessings. Um, in, we read them in earlier classes, the ones that were more like curses on Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Remember those? The rest of the blessings are in that same table, the 12 tribes chart, in the reference section of the study guide. The only one I want to highlight here is the one for Judah, just a, a couple of key parts. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. Like a lion, he crouches. Who dares to rouse him? This is where we get the whole lion of Judah thing. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the nations will obey him. Now, this is interesting, since at this moment there are no kings, there's not even a nation of Israel, and Judah himself is never a king in his lifetime. We, we see this as a messianic prophecy made from Jacob's deathbed, a prophecy of Jesus Christ, who is indeed a descendant of Judah, and who is, it tells us in the New Testament, the firstborn of many. I want you to think about how the firstborn work in this story, in this seminal story of Genesis, that, that blessing that belongs to the firstborn is always passed. It's passed down to the, the one, the next born. It's Jesus did that too. He passed his blessing to us. After saying these things, Jacob breathes his last and is gathered to his people. Joseph does as he had promised, and he and his brothers carry Jacob's body to Canaan and bury it with Abraham and Isaac. The brothers, however, are afraid that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph's true colors will show and he'll take revenge on them. But Joseph reassures them that God has worked this all for good and that he'll continue to care for them and provide for them. Joseph's brothers end up outliving him. As he dies at the age of 110, jo Joseph makes them promise to carry his bones out of Egypt to 
whenever God finally gives them the promised land. And so ends the book of Genesis. Congratulations. It's time for our breakout sessions. Grab your study guide while I get the sessions set up. Hello, y'all. Be sure to turn your sound back on so we can talk. I, I would love to hear what, what came up out of these questions in your groups. You cut Liz off right in the middle of a sentence. That's what happened. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Liz, turn your, um, there you go. You want to finish your thought? Um, um, the reconciling with yourself, I think, is the, is something to ponder that, I mean, that it does tell, you know, that it, it takes time, it takes time and work just with anybody, like with anybody else. I think that's all I was trying to say. So, and it does take work and it does take time and you have to be willing to put the work in just like regularly. Mm-hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit about forgiveness and reconciliation. What did y'all, how did you compare, contrast? What did you come up with those? Well, in our group, we talked about the fact that forgiveness is something that we do personally, and it's for our benefit. Where reconciliation, both parties have to be willing to come together. It's a restoration of relationship. Um, and so forgiveness does not necessarily result in reconciliation. Mm-hmm. We talked about how forgiveness is an act between me and God that I am releasing to God my desire for vengeance. And that's that with some different relationships that I have to deal with forgiveness with. Um, that's a really big deal that I, I release my desire to exact revenge yeah i mean i mean even even outside of a spiritual context um Mm -hmm. mental health experts frequently working with victims of some form of abuse um work with them to help them reach a point of being able to release that that anger and that and that the to, to forgive in order for them to be able to be more emotionally healthy, but that doesn't mean they need to reconcile with the person who has caused or might again cause them harm. Right. <clears throat> what else came up in your in your talks? We had mentioned that God has to also prepare both sides um, for reconciliation that it's not just one side, that that both parties, and it's really a relationship with God, how you're growing with God or not growing with God that really can make those situations happen where you have true reconciliation, um, not, uh, you know, just words. Are, Are there times when you don't or can't have reconciliation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The last thing my brother said to me was on a voicemail that he left me that uh, he didn't care if I lived or died. And if I do die, um, I should go to hell and stay there. How? Those were the That's... last words out of my brother, the minister's mouth to me. So uh, 
yeah, there's probably not going to be reconciliation there. Mm. What, what my, for a long time? My brothers have hurt me over and over and over again. And um, he, if he really is innocent of what he was accused of, then I suppose he has a right to say that to me. But I know for a fact that he did do what he was accused of doing. And um, I sent him a very private letter just between him and I, not involving the family or anything else, suggesting that he needed to get some counseling and he needed to own up to what he had done and he needed to make restitution to the people who he had hurt. And that was the result of my very private letter was that he read it out loud to his entire family telling them that it was all a bunch of lies and um, his family of course defended him and took his side against their crazy aunt. So let's and go back to the let's go back to the criteria that you listed in there you know because this is a deep deep kind of hurt you know um, and, and I heard several things that you mentioned. Um, I think one, one that clearly is just basic recognition that a wrong was done. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not going to happen. Yeah. And very often we don't get to that point. Um, and, and it makes me think, um, and wonder if, there and I want to pose this question to you guys is there a way to reconciliation um say outside of something like this where where it's the person is a danger you know I think there's a difference between reconciling with a person who's an actual physical danger to themselves or other people and reconciling when it's a um a, a difference of worldview you know what I mean Two different kinds of things. So let's and a difference of world a difference of worldview. Worldview. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I think um like my ther therapist told me after my dad died, um that my dad couldn't hear, hurt me anymore. So give him forgiveness and try to, you know, include him in your prayers and, and stuff like that because you want that relationship but I can have it now safely right. um, where my brother, I don't know if there were, could ever be any recon reconciliation there. And I've reached out to him and he's, Oh yeah, we can do that. We can get together. We can go do this. We'll talk on the phone every week. None of it never happens. And finally I had realized um, that He's never, he, unless he changes or, you know, whatever, um, or gets help, there's no way to reconcile that because I can never trust what he says. So that's an important part is some level of trust and respect, right? Mm -hmm. Mutual trust and respect. Um, I find very often, especially in family relationships, that there is somehow this difference between love and respect. 
mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and love and being trustworthy. And um, in these relationships, uh, I can find that you can quite sincerely love someone and be loved by someone and not have the requisite trust and respect that's necessary for a normal relationship, you know, for an ongoing mm -hmm. relationship. I love my brothers. I love my brothers. I have never stopped loving my brothers, but I've stopped allowing them to hurt me. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Well, there's a lot to think about here, um, and we're at the end of our time, but I, I just uh, I had a couple of thoughts I wanted to share with you. Um, one is I made the mistake of feeling like I needed to have an apology before I could forgive or reconcile. And it was an epiphany to me. It was life-changing to me when I realized that no apology anybody ever says will ever be enough. They didn't stand in your shoes. They can't fully know the harm they did to you. Um, and that's really where vengeance comes from, is where we want them to feel like we felt. And the only way we can think of doing that is by hurting them, you know? And, uh, and that's why God says vengeance belongs to him, because not that he's going to take revenge on anybody, but because we can never take enough revenge for them to feel what we want them to feel. And we can never take the kind of revenge that would make them feel the way we felt. It's only God knows their heart and only God knows the way to get them to the point they need to be to understand. That's what it means. And so waiting for a sufficient apology is going to stand in the way of your healing. Mm -hmm. Healing has to begin without being dependent on their apology or even their realization of the wrong they did. It can be powerful to stand in the shoes of your abuser and utter out loud an acknowledgement to yourself of the harm they did you naming it as wrong and speaking an apology on their behalf to you mm. even if they never do it the words have been said to your wounded self also it can help to think of rituals you can create to give closure to the incident. Um, perhaps writing down the wrongs that they did and burning the paper ceremonially. Uh, maybe forming a symbol of the wrong out of clay and then breaking it down and reforming the clay into a vessel or shape of blessing. Choosing a piece of music with lyrics or melody that speak to your wound. And then choosing a time and place to go alone or with a trusted friend 
to listen to the music and close your eyes and release all the hurt to ride on the notes of the music as it floats away. You can end by dipping your fingers in a fragrant oil, inhaling the fragrance three times as a healing scent and feeling it enter your body. Our life is in our breath. And there's a lot of healing in breathing in and breathing out intentionally and with significance. And then choose a blessing to read or to have your friend read and mark your forehead with the oil in a blessing. Moving towards forgiveness is a choice. Moving towards reconciliation is a choice. They are independent of each other. You get to choose one and not the other, depending on the circumstances. And they don't happen in a point in time. Know that they are journeys, not destinations. And uh, that is it for class. We're, we're going to start Exodus next week. And it's a, we are finished with the setup. This, is, this has all been set up to this point. The real action of the Bible starts next week. And um, it will be something else. And so if you have friends who would like to join uh, the live class but have been hesitant because they didn't want to catch up, this would be a good place to join. Um, it's a it's a good starting point. It's another good starting point, but it's it's been wonderful, and I'm looking forward to it. See you guys next week. Yay. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Sure. Bye. It's ironic that we covered this when my sister's birthday is on September second, next Wednesday, and I'm glad we didn't cover it on her birthday because, as you know, we're estranged and. It has just taken many, many, many years to figure out there's nothing I can do about it. There's, it's not something I have control over. It hurts. I wish I had my sister in my life, but I cannot understand what she thinks I've done to her. It's all in her mind, and I don't know. So it's really hard when it comes time for her birthday. I can appreciate that. I have difficult relationships in my own family. That are you like saw you, you met her at mm -hmm. my mom's funeral, and that's the only time I've seen her since 1995. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember her, and I remember that she was very rigid mm -hmm. and tense. But she came. She came. And, that was, and I, my daughter was wise enough to take a picture. So I have a picture of my sister. And that's probably the last picture or time I'll get to see her. Right. So this was a hard one for me. You yeah. Know? I kind of expected it to be hard, you know. And it can be hard to talk about. But I'm, I'm hoping that it planted some seeds that might bring healing eventually but and and i think she suffers the lack of forgiveness of our father 
our father was an abusive individual and well i took the brunt of it because she was three years younger and i did a lot to protect her in life she doesn't see that she just knows the harm she felt and when my father was when i was 25 years old in may in may 25th i think it was i went and i saw my father and i reconciled with him at the urging of my aunt who had somehow found us and i was so frustrated and scared and i took my little boy with me my six-year-old son and we went and met him and he was no longer the big hulking monster of a person. He was a feeble old man who could do no harm to anyone. And we reconciled. I was able to share Christ with him. At that time, I was attending a, a Southern Baptist congregation and proselytizing is a big part of that. And so, Every letter I wrote to him, I would share God with him because he was Catholic and I just wanted to do my part and share my happiness with him. And then he passed on September 26th. And I remember when I was six years old, crying in our Rambler and my parents telling us, oh, don't worry about it because the doctor had told him if he didn't stop drinking and smoking, He'd be dead in 20 years. And I was distraught. And they said, oh, don't worry about that. And he was buried on my 26th birthday. Oh. But I had reconciled. And so I got that peace. And I got that lifting of that burden of forgiveness. And my sister never was able to do that. She never was able to receive that gift. And while I was there for him, for his funeral, I received the last letter I wrote him. Oh, Julia. So it was a, it was a blessing. It was a good thing. Because even though it was from May to September, it was enough. You know? changed the trajectory of my life and unfortunately i hurt for my sister but i can't change her life right. and thankfully i have a very good husband who says you just have to recognize because i keep trying to think what did i do to her what what is it and it's just mental health. It's nothing that I have control over. So letting go of that is an, an onward struggle for me. Right. Because I want, but I also want to be respectful of the fact that we have a cousin that she interacts with. And if I desperately needed to get a hold of her, I could through him at her discretion. Right. But I don't abuse that. Right. You have to respect people's boundaries that they put up, even exactly. If, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. But this was really good. I saw I saw multiple relationships in here. Yeah. 
So I thought that was great, but I won't keep you all. Now, forgiving my ex-husband is another story. (laughs) (laughs) I was the hardest part on that relationship of my own. My my uh, ex-husband died um, uh, about a year or two ago, and uh, you know, every once in a while, a song will come on the radio that was important to us when we were dating, and you know, there's just such ineffable sadness there, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the questions we didn't get to that I, I went down is the forgiving yourself. I have a really hard time because I blame myself for trusting my brother. And I go through, well, what could I have done to keep my dad from treating me the way he did? You know, I take all that blame on me when it's not my blame to carry. Right. And so forgiving myself is a work in progress. It really is, and that's and that's why I put it in there. And, and because very often um, these kinds of hurts happen to us when we're young, when we're children, when we're growing up, and yet in our mind's eye we see ourselves as we are now as adults. I I actually see myself in my twenties, but whatever. But <laughs> I'm always okay. shocked when I look in the mirror and see my mother. But but. Um, <laughs> But, but we forget that we were young and immature and not equipped for these situations, that these people who did these things were in places of trust because we need them to be trustworthy. That's what family is supposed to be. That's how God made us. And that even if in our adult minds now we can think of, well, I could have done this or I could have gone to that person or I could have done X, Y, Z to protect myself. Those are lies. That's not true. You were doing your best at the moment that it happened to you. You were doing everything you could at that age and in those circumstances. And sometimes, no, I think I, to visual, sometimes it helps to visualize yourself as that child and speak to the child. Those words of forgiveness. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of children and a lot of them four. And the cycle broke with my house. You know, there wasn't that violence against the children in my house and yet there's things that although my oldest son had a good upbringing in so many ways and he knew he was loved there's all these pains that are not my pains but are his pains and my daughters and my youngest son and it doesn't have to be the most extreme hurtful things Mm -hmm. it can be smaller things too and it can be imagined things yes yes i i myself am guilty guilty of that and i know that others in my um relationships that hurt are guilty of that you know that that what has actually imagining is an is is imaginary stuff it's still real it's hard to to put yourself in a place of 
understanding that we all have well it's not really hard it's a mindset we need to adopt of understanding that we all have our baggage that and our triggers that are so important to us and how we treat each other and there's also such a thing as what you would call in business institutional memory um, and and we have family memory in us um, something that is also very helpful a tool that's helpful is called a genogram and what that does is it goes through your family tree actually in the format written out of a family tree but it looks at the relational things that are happening between members of that family tree and where abuse happened where it where it happened farther back in your generations and wider out because that memory lives in us um, people often do that uh, in families where there's suicide so that people who are struggling with feelings of suicide can understand it's not just them this is something that likely you know was 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 likely back in that family tree more than once, you know, um, and that that path was made um, as, you know, the, as a solution. Um, and, and to me, I, I like to think about, like you were talking about, Julia, is I have, I am, I have all of this family memory built into my DNA, but I still have a choice and I can change the path, I can change the way markers, I can change the signs on the path for my children. I may not be able to solve it all, but I can make a difference. Yep. Well, thank yeah, you, think, Gail, very much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I think, I think, Go ahead, Marlene. Yeah, I think, I think, um, what you were saying, Gail, is is true in my own family. Um, my grandfather, on my father's side, was um, and he was he was a pastor, um, very physically and emotionally abusive to his own children. He was also a pedophile. And um, when my parents were, you know, they got married, you know, 1949, so they were both very young. And when they were, when my mom was pregnant with me, it came out that my, at that time, my grandfather was running a children's home in Kentucky. And it came out that he had been abusing the teenage girls. And um, my father ended up for the second time in his life having to testify in court because my father, my grandfather was being tried for statutory rape. Um, the first time it happened, my dad was very young and he was coached by his father on what to say in the witness stand and his dad got off. But then as a young adult, he then again had to testify against his father. Um, and that time my grandfather went to prison. Um, but that caused a rift between my dad, not only my dad and his father, but also my dad and his brother. And I expect the brother felt your that, dad, I expect also within your dad. Yes, it, my mom said it changed the way he interacted 
with my older sister who was just a toddler at the time because in him was built this sudden fear of what if that is in me too yeah and he carried that fear for decades um and so he was never very physically demonstrative with my sister or me it was always a loving kind man but not physically demonstrative it was almost like he was afraid to let that barrier down um and it broke the relationship in his family for decades um and i never met my grandfather or my uncle and um it wasn't until my grandfather was quite elderly in his 90s that, and he was dying, that his wife con tried to contact my dad and say, your father wants to see you. And my dad didn't wanna go. But my mom said to him, you need to go because you need to have peace before he dies. If you don't see him before he dies, you're always gonna carry this good for inside her inside of you wise words so, yeah so he went and again it was kind of that situation of a man who looms large in your memory um as this powerful hurtful dangerous person and when my dad came back from seeing his father there wasn't so much a reconciliation because his dad would never admit that he had done anything wrong but it, it was a release for my dad because he came home and he said to my brother, I didn't see my father there. I saw a frail old man. And it was like the power had been taken away from my grandfather in my dad's life Good. and in his eyes. Yeah. And, that, and that I think gave him peace, even though there was never really reconciliation. I think it allowed my dad to, to I don't know if he actively forgave his father because the harm that was done to those girls affected their entire lives and he found it very difficult to to be able to forgive that but it gave him peace it gave him a perspective it's really really important to let go i think forgiveness is not as much about the act that they did it's about letting go of that tail that's yanking you around, that's dragging you around. It's letting go of that power. It's exactly what you described. That exactly is what forgiveness is supposed to be. I think we, we've put a lot of baggage around what forgiveness is, you know, but what you described, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Like with you, Julia, you know, where you were able to, to break the cycle of violence in your own family. That's what my dad did yes. in our family. My, my dad never raised his voice to us kids. He never raised a hand to us kids. Um, and, um, and so we only knew love. We never, we never, you know, he broke that, that chain of violence down to our family thanks me for that all the time my oldest yeah. son he says thank you so much for breaking that chain and making yeah. it where i know love and i can love my children That's even though they drive him insane 
<laughs> well, that's your job. Yeah, exactly. Love you, you guys. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Uh huh. Thank you.